Alberto Cairo joins me today to talk about the dark side of data viz and his brand new book, How Charts Lie. Our conversation dives into the various ways visuals can mislead, why they're misinterpreted, mindfulness as it relates to graphs, and simple things everyone can do to help from spreading misinformation. All this and more in today's episode of the Storytelling with Data podcast. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. I'm very excited to have Alberto Cairo here with me today. Alberto, welcome. Hi, Cole. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Thank you. Where are you joining us from today? Are you home in Miami? Yes, fortunately, yes. I'm traveling quite a lot these days, but yeah, this week I am at home. Fantastic. And do me a favor and look out your window. And can, can you describe for us what you see right now? Well, right now I'm seeing trees. And then in the background, I'm seeing a few clouds because things uh, weather has gotten a little bit unstable down here in Miami lately. Okay. Um, so it's cloudy skies. Why? How is the weather over there? Well, I was just hoping that we could, uh, it would help us imagine that we're there with you. <laughs> <laughs> is it getting very cold up there? No, but actually what I see out my window right now is a cement truck. <laughs> we oh. have some construction happening here. So um, if we hear some background noise, that'll help explain that. That's place. okay. That's fine. That's fine. I understand. I have a fun stat to start us off with, which is that we've been doing this podcast for nearly two years now, and you are the very first person that I've had the opportunity to chat with twice. Oh, wow. That's an honor. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we talked back in May 2018 uh, about truth in data. And at that point, you were pretty well into your writing process of your new book. And we chatted a bit about it then. Mm -hmm. um, given that you've been on the show before, I'm going to skip past the normal intro stuff and point people to our last episode together where they can hear more about your background. I'll make sure I put that link in the show notes. I really just want to jump in and talk about your new book, Perfect. How Charts lie, right? Set to be published a few short days from now on October 15th. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was a, has been a long, long way to get this book published, although it was a pleasure to write it. it it's I think that among the books that I have written so far, it's the, the one that I have most fun with. And I think that it shows in the book. Um, but it has been a long, I mean, it's very different. It's my first book published with a, published with a, with a big publisher. Mm -hmm. W.W. Norton. And the process is actually quite different to publishing with a sort of semi-academic publishers or professional publishers such as, you know, Wiley or Pitch Pit Press or places like that. The process takes much longer, not the writing itself, but the editing, you know, the, 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 the verification of all the facts and stuff. It takes much longer, but it has been okay. a lot of fun. How was the editing process different this time around? Oh, wow. I mean, I had a, a, like a two, like I had my editor. I have, I had a copy editor. I had a fact checker. I also, I also asked tons of friends to go over the, go over the book just to make sure that there were no mistakes uh, in the book. Although I'm sure that there will be some. 
but I mean, I try to make this book as you know as rigorous as possible, even if it is a book for the general public. But yeah, that that extended the process. So I would say that it took me around two years to put this book together. Of those, writing itself was probably just five or six months. The rest was uh, again copy editing, fact checking, reviewing over and over and over again, like five rounds. We did five rounds of copy editing. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Very time consuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me more about the title, How Charts Lies, sort of a provocative title, which I'm thinking may have been on purpose. How, how did you choose the title? Well, I mean, it, it, it reflects back to books that are already classics, right? Such as How to Lie with the Statistics or one of my favorite ones, a Mark Monmonier's How to Lie with Maps, which I consider one of the must read books for any visualization design. It's a fantastic book. Um, however, I wanted something even punchier and even more provocative. So it's, I, I consider How to Lie with Charts, but there's already a, a, a book with that title. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I didn't use it. And also, I, I didn't do um, How to Lie with Charts. I wanted How Charts Lie because it's much more direct and much mm-hmm. more provocative. And I, I, I already anticipated that the title would would get a little bit of pushback. And I actually wrote about that in my blog, anticipating the pushback, for example, oh, the, the book title is too negative. You're going to cast a negative light hmm. over data visualization. I said, well, you know, the first rule that I explain in the book is pay attention and read beyond the title. Because so, if, if you don't do that, you will, not, you will not understand what the content is about. And also I remember Hans Rosling's uh, recommendation that if you want to bring people at people's attention to important information, you need to be like the worst tabloid in the front and like the best scientist in the back, like the the academy of. So you need to be as as accurate as possible, but at the same time, when you present your message at first, it, it, that message needs to have some some punch to it. And also, I decided to to choose a title because to acknowledge that visualization also has a negative side. It has a not a negative side, but it, 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 it can be, it can have a dark side to it, right? It's like if people don't understand graphics well, or if graphics are designed in purpose to mislead people, that happens. It does happen. And we need to help people prepare to that, that dark side of visualization. But the tone of the book, as you know, is positive. It's actually a book that could have perfectly been titled How to Become a Better Chart Reader or something mm-hmm. like that. That's what the book is really about. Yeah, it. I, I will say upon reading it, for me, it, it, was more positive, although there were certainly dark moments within it, Mm -hmm. uh, more positive overall than I maybe expected going in. The audience for this book, and you you mentioned this briefly before, but it is different from your previous books, right? The functional art, the truthful art were written primarily for practitioners, but that's not the case here, is it? No, no, it's not. Um, So it's it's a book that I wrote... um, with several kinds of audiences in mind. So first of all, I wrote it with my dad in mind, right? My dad is a medical doctor. Uh, He was a professor for a while. He sees charts and graphs and maps in the media, and sometimes he doesn't pay enough attention to them. Mm -hmm. He doesn't devote enough time to interpret them, and sometimes he may misunderstand them. I also wrote it with um, school teachers in mind. So um, in uh, in the past... Uh, a couple of years, I have been doing a series of public lectures about the issues that I described in the book. And in the audience, sometimes I had um, public school teachers, middle school, high school teachers in the audience who approached me right afterwards saying, how, how can I translate all these concepts and all these ideas to a language that you know, a 14, 15, 16 year old can understand? And the book actually is written a little bit 
with that purpose. There are several examples in the book that are actually intended to be easily adapted to younger audiences. For example, the map that I have of heavy metal band concentrations in Europe, um, which is, I got a little bit of pushback on that from some uh, initial readers, some preliminary readers who say, well, perhaps spending three pages just describing that example is a little bit too much. And I say, well, but there is a reason why Mm -hmm. I spent three pages on that is because this is a template that a school teacher can use. And instead of, you know, showing a map of heavy metal bands in Europe, perhaps she can create, I don't know, a map of hip hop bands in the United States and basically just repurpose that example and use it in the classroom. But ultimately, the audience for the book is just anyone, anyone who is interested in becoming becoming a better chart reader. So my previous books are for chart designers. This This one is for chart readers. Coming back to the title and this idea of a general audience, do, do you think, is there recognition that there is a problem? Does the general public feel like they're being lied to by charts? I don't think so. And that's one thing that, that really worries me. And I, I talked about it in the talk about it in the book. So uh, we, I think that we designers are a little bit to blame for this, but we have spread the idea that um, visualizations are easier to understand than words or that visualizations are intuitive or that you know the, a picture is worth a thousand words, basically, yeah. right? That's the, I actually mentioned that in the book itself. Although a visualization is not really a picture, it is still an image, right? An image is worth a thousand words. Or a show don't tell, which is so one of my pet peeves in graphic design, right? It's like we need to show and tell, not show don't tell. We need to show and tell. So the general public, in general, I think, has internalized the idea that visualizations are objective, precise you know, um, that they capture the truth, quotation marks around those words in there somehow. And they approach, in general, visualizations as if they were, again, images that can be understood, you know, in the blink of an eye. And what I argue in the book is that visualizations need to be taught, and that's the way I teach teach in the book, is that visualizations need to be taught not as if they were images. They are indeed images, but they are much more than images. They are arguments made visual. And if you want mm-hmm. to understand an argument, you need to read that argument. You need to pay attention to it. And we, I think that we all can help educate the public a little bit um, in this idea, in this in the idea that if you want to get the right information from a chart, you need to pay attention to it. One of the reasons why I wrote it, by the way, is that in the past three or four years, I have been basically talking to people about how they read graphics, right? In particular, mm-hmm hurricane maps and things like that, you know, and showing maps to different kinds of people. And I have observed that there's a huge gap in between what the designer has in mind when they desi- when, when we design a visualization and what readers actually get. It's like I, I've sum- summarized these in the title of my, in, in a title for recent talks, I titled them, what you design is not what people see. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like it, we need to internalize this idea that the mental models that we designers use to design our visualizations are usually not the same mental models and schemas that readers use to interpret our visualizations. There is a gap in there. And if we want to bridge that gap, we need to, first of all, explain how to read our graphics sometimes if our graphics are complex. We also need to assume that the visualization alone may not be intuitive per se. And also on the part of the readers, readers also need to become more attentive. There is a responsibility also on the part of the reader to be a little bit more attentive to the charts that we see. 
you've said a ton of stuff just in these last couple of sentences Sorry. that I want to come back to, uh, mm-hmm. and we will. I've read the book. I was lucky to get an early copy from you. And you've told me in the past that this is not a book for me, but I honestly believe after reading it that anyone who creates graphs needs to do so because it's an excellent reminder both of the many things that, you know, you talk about being an attentive uh, reader, the things that we need to be looking for to be conscious consumers of data, but then also things to definitely be reflecting on as we're creating graphs. But that said, I have a fear that the people who might need this book the most may be the least likely to read it. How do you address that? How do you get this book in the right people's hands and get them to want to read it? Well, remember that what I said before about uh, school teachers using this book in their classes. I am not assuming that a 15 or 16 year old will read this book. Right. It may happen, and I would be happy if that happened, but that is not that was not my initial purpose. I mean, it, it, it would be great if people who need it will read the book, but what I care more about is that mediators will read the book. Right. One of the reasons why visualizations that are made public sometimes are not understood by the public is that, and I'm thinking again about hurricane maps, which is occupy a, a good portion of the central part of the book, not a good portion, but a, you know, 10 pages or so in the middle of the book. There is a reason why so many people misinterpret those kinds of charts. It's not because the charts are not intuitive. They are not intuitive just because they present very complex information. And it's actually quite hard to make them better, to design them better. The key there is that those charts could be you know, picked up by journalists and newscasters and explained, being explained to the public more accurately. Therefore, the public will understand those graphics, not thanks to the graphics themselves, but thanks to the mediators. So I hope mediators, in this case, journalists, for example. So I hope that these kinds of mediators, you know, um, uh, journalists or scientists interested in public communication and so on and so forth, will pick up the the book and uh, become better, better chart readers and at the same time, better chart explainers, so to speak. Yeah. That makes sense, right? Those who can influence or explain yeah. to yeah. help the broader public. Exactly. And get and get the public excited about charts because one of the messages of the of the book is that yeah, charts can lie and charts can mislead and we misinterpret them. But you know, if we are careful with them, they, they are actually very helpful. I mean they, they, they can open your eyes to things that you will not see otherwise. So there is a very positive side of, of, of charts as well. Let's talk about the negative side for a bit, though. So if we think of the the book is divided into chapters that address specific ways that charts can lie. Can you tell us more about some of these? Walk us through the general structure of the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, a chart can mislead you for, for many, many different reasons. The main one is that you don't pay attention to it. And this is the most common case. You just take a quick look at it. You assume that you understand the chart and you move on, but you actually didn't because you didn't spend a couple of minutes trying to decode what the chart was saying. So that's that's the first rule, pay attention, stop for a second. Uh, take a look at the source of the data if you, if you can, because sometimes taking a look at the primary source of the data can dispel misunderstandings also. So what is it that the chart is measuring, for example? Sometimes you don't know exactly what it is measuring unless that you can consult with the primary source of the data. And I explain in the book that this is actually much less complicated than it seems. It's just a matter of spending just a few seconds just going to the primary source of the data and taking a look where it comes from, who created the data, what the assumptions were, and what it is that it is measuring. You don't need to be a specialist or a statistician or a data scientist to do this. Obviously, if you are, that's even better. So uh, a chart can mislead just because the data itself is not is not 
good or it's not appropriate for whatever it is that is measuring. It can also mislead, obviously, if the if the display of the data is distorted or twisted, you know, truncating axes in interesting ways or, you know, changing the scale of maps, of choropleth maps, etc. That could be another way in, a, in, a, in which a chart can mislead, right? Um, a chart can also mislead you because this is a, a key um, a message of the book because we all tend to project what we want to believe onto the charts that we see. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a very important one. And there's a rule of chart reading that I describe in, in the book and I mentioned explicitly, which is that a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. Everything else that you see in a chart is something that happens in your brain. It doesn't happen on the chart itself. The chart is just an interface between you and the data and, and the interpretation happens in your mind. So you need to be mm-hmm. careful with that. Um, and you need to curb, try to curb at least your own impulses and your own and your own biases. I also talk a little bit about, a little bit about uncertainty, the fact that in many cases visualizations that don't don't show the possible uncertainty surrounding point point estimates, and sometimes this uncertainty is incredibly important uh, to understand what the message of a chart can be. And I show examples of that. Coming up with the right verbal descriptions of the of the charts that we see is another one uh, that I that I have in the book. So. Again, this is related to paying attention, is related to not projecting what you want to believe onto the charts that you see, but it is very easy to come up with a verbal description of the content of the chart that may bias your understanding of that chart as well. Um, and I have a couple of examples of that in the book. Right? Uh, and in general, you know, being ethical, that's, an, uh, that's one of the last messages of the, uh, one of the messages at the end of the book is a discussion about the ethics of visualization, the ethics of chart making, but also the ethics of chart a chart reading. Oh, and there's another one that I forgot, uh, not not including sufficient information, right? It's like mm-hmm. many visualizations are oversimplifications of data by showing just national rates or averages or medians when, for example, the, I don't know, the spread of the data is very wide or there are extreme values or outliers and so on and so forth. Cases like that, you need to show the data at a more granular level. If you only show the aggregates, then you are not really informing people, you're misinforming them, right? Yeah. And you talk about the flip side of that as well, right? When there's too much data and it overwhelms. Exactly. You can also obscure. This is, by the way, an idea, the, this idea of, of finding the sort of the middle point between too much and too little. This is an idea that has appeared in the past in writings by Howard Weiner. Howard, ha- Howard has several books about data visualization and in one of them, he has a chapter about uh, misleading charts, and he actually talks about this problem. He says, and sometimes it may a chart may lie because it doesn't include enough information. Sometimes it lies because it includes too much information. And what can people do when they're looking at a graph to know if if it's lying or if they're being lied to? And actually, a twist on this, because I, I asked the tourist sphere to pose some questions for you, and Tiago asked a similar question, although his framing was a bit different, which was, if you had to create a BS detection checklist for charts, what would be the essential items? Well, unfortunately, there's not a there is a not, not a quick answer to that question. I mean, the book itself is the answer to that question. That <laughs> is the, the list of things that you need to pay attention to. Um, the the bad news is that we will not be able to detect all the, the BS in charts in all the charts that we see every single day. That's impossible, just because we we may lack you know domain specific knowledge about the charts that we see. Right. Yeah. However. If we apply sort of the little, small, very simple principles and guidelines that I describe in the book, I tend to believe that we may avoid you know, a high percentage of the cases in which we may be misled 
uh, by charts like that. Again, taking a look at the primary source of the data, while, uh, paying attention to what is being measured, um, uh, the description of the chart, whether the chart is distorted or not, and so on and so forth. Those things kind of can help us avoid um, a, being misled by many charts, not all of them. But at the same time, the prerequisite to all these is just, you know, you need to spend time. Uh, you need to yeah. basically stop yourself, don't rush, don't retweet the chart, which is something that I have done myself mindlessly um, yes. sometimes. So so curb that impulse, right? Just, just control yourself, control your own impulse of just quick media consumption or information consumption. Stop for a second or for a minute or two minutes and read the chart carefully. Well, and I think that's such an important point, and it's one I've heard you make before. And in the book, you comment, you know, everyone who has an online presence today is a publisher, which has to be just a terrifying reality for a journalist, uh, you know, for everyone, really. Uh, so, well, I'm going to interrupt you in there. I, I am a journalist, and it doesn't terrify me at all. I think okay. that is, it's great news. Um, I think that is fantastic uh, that anybody and everybody can publish um, publish online. That there's an opportunity for more you know, for a broader, wider, and even deeper discourse, you know, and, and you know, being, being able to be exposed to the uh, views of scientists and statisticians and designers everywhere and without being mediated by public, by traditional publications. I think that this is great. The flip side to that, though, is that, as, as you mentioned before, I do believe that in some sense we are all publishers today and yeah. publishers have responsibilities. We have responsibilities. This is one of the reasons why in the previous book, in The Truthful Art, in which I talked a little bit about this idea, I think that certain ethical principles that are traditionally applied just to journalists and graphic designers and communicators now apply to everybody or should apply to everybody. You know, the obligation of trying to be truthful when we communicate with others, trying to be honest, trying to be balanced as much as possible, double-checking everything that we put online. This is a responsibility that belongs to everybody. And I wish that... These could be part of, you know, educational systems at the high school level, for example, how important it is to double check everything that we put online, because we all have an ethical responsibility to create a better informational environment. I know that there are bad actors uh, out there that obviously, you know, try to lie in purpose and twist information in purpose. But I am an optimist. I think that most people in general are well-intentioned. We don't like to lie. We don't like to lie and we don't like to be lied to. Um, so we can take advantage of that natural ethical impulse that we are yeah. all born with, or most of us are born with. And you talk about pausing for a moment and checking sources. Are there other easy things that people can do to help from spreading misinformation? Yes, absolutely. And this this goes beyond the book itself, although I talk about it in the book, perhaps in anticipation of future things that I want to write about, which are not necessarily just about graphics. So we all have biases. We all have cognitive biases. We all have ideological biases. We are human beings. That's inevitable. We are all like that. And there are several, you know, there are people who are a little bit pessimistic about this fact. They say, well, humans are not able to overcome their own biases. The world is not going to get better. Informational environments are going to get even worse in the future. But I am a, I'm a believer in the fact that we can all get a little bit better. We cannot control our own biases 100% of the time but we can all become a little bit more mindful about how opinions are formed in our brains. And this is related to, you know, the literature of mindfulness and, mm -hmm. and self-knowledge. 
I, I started reading about this many, many years ago. And for example, I remember reading Jonathan, Jonathan Haidt's um, The Righteous Mind, in which he explains you know, this idea that in the traditional model of reasoning, of human reasoning, humans begin with the data, then we analyze the data, and then we form opinions. And Haidt says, and I, I talked about this in How Chat Slide, that it's actually completely the opposite. What we do is that, first of all, we form an opinion for emotional reasons, and then we try to uh, gather data to confirm and, and reassure mm-hmm. and reinforce that opinion that we formed emotionally. So that's a true fact. It happens to everybody. It happens to me. It happens to you. It happens to all of us. And you mentioned at one point the, the you know that we're we're drawn to graphs that show something that we already believe. Exactly. Right? Yes, we like yes. them more. <laughs> yeah. We don't we don't look at them as carefully and yeah. as attentively as we do to graphics that actually refute what we believe. We tend to yeah. look at those much more closely because we want to refute them because we don't agree with them. What I have come to believe throughout the years, though, through my own personal experience, is that it is possible to curb that impulse. It is possible to sort of observe yourself from the outside and become mindful of when an opinion is bubbling inside your brain and appearing Mm -hmm. on its own. Because opinions are formed, in many cases, unconsciously. You don't form them yourself, but you can force yourself to either curb that opinion consciously after you notice that it is forming, you can curb yourself and you know, force yourself to stop for a second and tweak that opinion that is being forming inside of your, of your brain. And there are other practices that we can all, that we can all um, apply to become sort of perhaps better, I don't know, conversationalists or better mm-hmm. thinkers. I don't know how to put it, but I mentioned in How Chats Lie a little bit about the literature of, on, on cognitive science and, and persuasion and stuff. There is a wonderful ebook by a um, uh, British uh, psychologist called Tom Stafford. And Tom Stafford, he has this book, ebook titled For Argument's Sake, which is a very short book collecting two or three of his papers and writings, but it's super interesting. And in one of them, if I remember well, I don't remember the exact details, but he basically says that one of the most effective ways of changing people's minds, including your own, is that if you have a very strong opinion about something, Sit in front of someone who you know disagrees with your opinion and try to explain to that person reasonably why you are holding that opinion, why you have that opinion. And don't appeal to emotions. Don't appeal to arguments of authority. Try to lay out your own case rationally using you know, evidence, using data, using a string of reasoning that doesn't have, doesn't have gaps you know, in between steps. Mm-hmm. Once you start doing that, you realize, oh, shit, my opinions don't have any base. My opinions are just, I mean, their foundations are really flimsy. And that's when you start becoming mindful about your your own biases. And you start becoming a little bit more careful about what you see or what your brain makes you believe. When you see not only charts, but any other kind of communication or any kind of story. Well, and I find this so fascinating, right? One of the distinctions you talk about in the book is this distinction between rationalizing and reasoning. Correct. Can, can you talk more yeah. about that yeah. and the dangers and the yeah. opportunities? We are, we are going way beyond charts. I, I usually joke. <laughs> I usually joke that my books are not really about charts. That I use, you know, writing about visualizations as an excuse to write about other things. Because mm-hmm. these are the things are the things that I'm really interested. In. It's not that I don't like visualization. So I love visualization. But I love to use visualization as a springboard to basically talk about other issues that are a little bit wider than these. So this distinction between rationalization and reasoning, which I describe in the conclusion of How Chats Lie, this comes from several books. For example, 
um, what, what, what is the title? Uh, the Enigma of Reason. The Enigma of Reason by a couple of cognitive psychologists who explain, they are very pessimistic. These are the kinds of people who say, well, there's no way we can overcome all these biases, right? But the book is extremely interesting. It's very informative. And it explains that basically human intelligence probably didn't evolve to discover how the world really works. We evolve our intelligence to persuade other people of our own opinions and to help them or persuade them to join our groups or our tribes. Right? Therefore, right. reasoning in this sense is a form of persuasive rhetoric. And that is rationalization because we also use it to convince not only others, but also convince ourselves of our own opinions, to reinforce our own opinions. That confirmation um, bias, that right? confir- motivated reasoning and confirmation bias, which are are, are are closely related to each other. And then my favorite book about this, if anyone is interested in getting into this literature, which is uh, very deep, very wide, there are tons of books about these. Uh, so the enigma, the enigma of reason is really good, but it's perhaps a little bit technical as a as a first book. The one that I will recommend as a first reading in this literature is um, "Mistakes Were Made, But Not by Me." A, by a psychologist called uh, Carol Tavris. Uh, mistakes were made, but not by not, but not by me. It's an excellent. And I'll make sure that we link to all of yeah, these yeah. It's uh, an, book references. It's an excellent introduction to all this literature. A great excellent introduction to cognitive psychology, the psychology of biases, um, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. It's an excellent intro. There's also the classic, you know, thinking fast and slow, mm-hmm. um, and it's a great book. I mean, it's already a classic, but I find it a little bit dry. A little bit dense, particularly in comparison to a uh, Carol Tavris's book. All right, let's totally shift gears now and get back to your book. There are a ton of examples over the course of the book, and they're really varied from you know lines from a hundred years of solitude to climate change to metal bands, like you mentioned, and of course a ton of graphs and maps and other visuals. So I'm curious in a couple of things related to all the examples. First off, what was your process for identifying and collecting them all? Oh, I'm just very active in social media, as you know. I, I just follow tons of people who tweet about visualizations. I and I, I basically whenever I see something that interests me, I, I download it or I bookmark it or whatever. So I have a, like a personal archive. Um, I I read a lot, and this is not bragging. I, I read a lot of books, so about a, a tons of different things, and sometimes the best examples for visualization teaching don't come from the visualization literature. They come from other areas. For example, the ones about climate change, these are related to the fact that I have many friends who work in this field, atmospheric sciences and climate science, sciences, etc. And they have been dealing throughout the years with you know, a growing literature, disinformation literature around their research. And they, they obviously they are rightly a little bit you know, a little bit angry about all this, right? So they they have their own collections of line charts, right? And so there's uh, there's also literature about that, right? So I I, I, I uh, borrowed examples from that literature. I'm also very interested in, in psychology, for example, in politics, in economics. So I read widely and broadly 
not very deeply perhaps, but I, 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 I like to read broadly. I read tons of newspapers and magazines and, and online, etc. And sometimes you stumble upon examples in the most unla- unlikely places. All right. So you're reading, you're following social media, you're creating these archives. And did you actually make all of the charts in the book, or remake the ones that you'd found? I, I remade most of them, um, either based on the, m- most of the time based on the actual, on the actual data that the original ones were, were based on. Uh, but I, I use other people's graphics as well. So there are a few examples in the book that are basically just uh, taken from scientific papers. Those are the ones that look a little bit more pixelated than the others, um, just because they are bitmaps. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I made most of the graphics myself, yes. Can you share one of your favorite examples from the book? Oh, I have so many. Um, I, I, I really like, because it's so simple and so easy to understand, the one in which I show, and this was actually part of a conversation in social media, the one I, I showed in which um, several pundits were using a line chart of unemployment, or actually employment, number of jobs in the market. So if you, if you plot the number of jobs in the private market in the United States, the curve looks like a, like a new, right? So the, the employment goes down during the economic crisis. And then after 2010 or so, the curve starts recovering, right? With the United States start creating more jobs, right? So it looks like a, a new with an extended uh, right-hand side arm, something like that, right? And, 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 and these pundits were using that chart to um, basically support the idea that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is good for the job market. Because if you plot the point in time when Obamacare was, a, a, was approved, it actually coincides more or less with the point in time when the curve changes direction. So, I mean, you can quickly jump to a cautious conclusion in there, right? It's like the curve is changing direction, employment is getting better. Therefore, it's not true, as conservatives say, that Obamacare is bad for the job market. It's actually good because the, the curve changes direction and the job market is recovering. This is the one of the examples that I use in the book to say, you know, charts show only what it show and nothing else. All that this chart is showing is that there's a coincidence in time, but it doesn't really mean that one thing is really connected to the other, right? The only way you can do that is if you go beyond the chart, you look for more research and see whether Obamacare has an influence or not in the job market. I'm not saying that it doesn't. It, it may have an influence in the job market. I don't know. All that I'm saying is that the chart doesn't really help you prove uh, either that idea or the opposite idea. It's not useful for that because it's, it, this phenomena can be completely unrelated. And it's also a great example because it, it's also useful to explain people to how important it is to think about alternative scenarios, you know, mm-hmm. counterfactuals. What would have happened if Obamacare was never passed with the curve you know, would, would employment recover much more quickly, meaning that Obamacare is bad for the job market? Would employment recover much slower, meaning that Obamacare is actually good for the job market? Or would the curve looks this, look the same, meaning that Obamacare has no influence whatsoever on the job market? We don't know. And we don't know because the chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. So that will be one of them. Um, I don't know. Perhaps I just spoke a little bit too long on this, but I have... No, that's good. I have, well, and... and- your explanation is a good illustration of one of the things that you say in several ways over the course of the book, which is that one of the things that good graphs do is just allow you to pose good questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that charts. That's one of the virtues, one of the uh, you know the, the good side, or part of the good side of visualizations, right? That visualizations are or can be or should be 
conversation enablers, right? They should enable informed conversations about important issues. It's only that we need to use them well. We need to read them, read them well, right? And sometimes we don't. Another favorite example, by the way, just I just remember this one, is the chart that I showed on, you know, the, the scatter plot of cigarette consumption per capita yes, and life expectancy. Yes. And it's actually a positive association, right? The most the more cigarettes people consume on average country by country, the higher the life expectancy is. And I know that people, some people will read this chart wrong because I used to read that kind of chart wrong and, and describe that kind of chart wrong myself um, uh, in the past, describe it as the more we smoke, the longer we live. And that's actually not true. That's not what the chart is showing. The chart is only showing that there's a positive association between cigarette consumption and life expectancy at the national level. But that doesn't mean that the two things are related to each other. It doesn't mean that they're not confounding factors and there are many confounding factors. And it doesn't mean that that association that you see at the national level will not disappear at the individual level. And it does disappear at the individual level. It actually reverses because the association between cigarette consumption and life expectancy is negative at the individual level. So it's, it's a great example that can be easily repurposed by school teachers or by professors or whatever to teach the ecological fallacy and Simpson's paradox. Right, because it, it illustrates a couple of these things, right? Charts can lie because we're aggregating when we should be disaggregating Correct. or drawing conclusions or at the we right are, level. We are drawing conclusions about a particular level of aggregation based on data that is aggregated at a completely different level of aggregation. And again, I will emphasize, this is something that I have done myself. And I wrote about this in my blog. There is an example of this in my first book. In the functional art, there is a chart in which I dis- and I describe this chart, unfortunately, this way. If I, it's not, I mean, the chart is not wrong per se, but the description of the chart that I wrote may bias people's perception of that chart. Well, and this comes back to this idea of, you know, you talk about graphicacy and the grammar of graphs uh, that you need to have, and you mentioned mental models before, right? You need to have shared mental models for good effective communication. So some understanding between both the designer and the reader about what the chart's about, how data's encoded. So what are some of the implications for those designing graphs? How can we know what mental models our audience is working from? Well, we really cannot know beforehand unless that we are presenting our graphics to an audience that we are very familiar with, right? Internally in our company, for example, if you know really well the people who are going to read your graphics, you can sort of anticipate how you're going to read that. The problem is when you don't know who the audience is going to be. And and then you basically just need to rely on your own assumptions, on your own intuitions. There are several things that we can do though. So for example, um, we could try to test our graphics a little bit more often, right? And this is something that visualization designers can easily do because it can be done through, you know, you can do you can do it formally through focus groups or uh, unstructured interviews. There are several research methods that may help you understand how people understand or misunderstand your graphics. But you can also do it informally. Just show people in your family, friends, etc., who are not visualization designers or statisticians or business analytics people, whatever, show them your graphics, let them read them for a couple of minutes, and then go back to them and ask them, what did you learn? Talk to me about what you learned from the graphic. And then you need to record the answers. Because then if you do this a little bit more systematically and in the long term, you will start identifying patterns. You will start identifying ways in which people systematically misinterpret that particular kind of chart. So that's also research. 
is not as rigorous as scientific research is, but it can still inform your practice as a designer. And another thing that we need to do is like going back to the reference that I made before um, about um, Hans Rosling, right? Rosling, I think that he's one of the most important figures in the history of visualization, not only because he created Gapminder or because he was a great presenter and he was, or because he wrote, um, what's the title of his book? Um, Factfulness. Factfulness, yes. He's also very important because if you pay attention to the style of his lectures, whenever he presented a visualization, he didn't just talk about the content of the visualization itself. He usually, before he do that, he usually explained how to read the visualization. And this is the show and tell part that I was explaining before. So if we were showing a scatter plot, he said, take a look at this. Position on the x-axis is whatever. Position on the y-axis is whatever. Bubble size is whatever. Color means whatever. So he was describing the grammar of the graphic, the symbology of the graphics. These are the symbols, but also how those symbols were arranged to convey information. And that's the grammar of the graphic. And then he moved on and started explaining the content of the graphic itself. That is the show and tell part that I was talking about before. Well, and graphical literacy has become, and data literacy has become sort of a buzzword lately, but that seems like an excellent place to start, right? Is for people who are presenting a graph to, you know, whether live or sending it around, if, you know, if you're there live, set it up for your audience, talk them through what they're going to be looking at. I think one thing that Hans Rosling often did well, also that worked well, is he'd set the graph up, but then after he did that and put the data on, he would talk about specific points and again, relate that back to what that meant or how they related to each other in a way that reinforced the encodings and how to read it and you know the grammar of the chart. Correct. I mean he became he became so to speak the annotation layer of his graphics, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. we can do that, we can all add annotation layers to our visualizations, not only verbally, but also textually. I, it, it really surprises me sometimes that you know, I, I would not say that is everybody, but you know that that certain visualization designers don't pay a lot of attention to the words that we write to surround our visualizations, right? Our our titles, our introductions, our annotations, our footnotes. Those elements are not just, you know, byproducts or, you know, secondary uh, components of our visualizations. They are intrinsically connected to the content of the visualization itself, and they they may reinforce the content of your visualization. And I like to tell people or remind people that if you made the graph, of course, you're going to understand what it shows. Of course, course. you're going to understand the encodings. But for anybody else, you need to put that down. That's (laughs) a mental model problem. The mismatch between mental models is the curse of knowledge. There is even a term for that. The curse of knowledge. You know so much about the content of your graphic that you assume that everybody else will know the same, you know, will be at the same level of knowledge as you are. And that's usually not the case. Yeah. Well, and that happens generally, right, as well, for people who are working with graphs regularly, that we lose sight of the fact that the things that seem obvious to us are not obvious to the general person. Correct. I mean, and it happens, again, it happens to all of us. And one of the best, by the way, one of the best antidotes to this problem is to become a teacher. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, teaching people, again, you know, beginners or young students or whatever, it, it makes you... Um, more careful, I would say, with all these problems. It makes you aware of how much you take for granted sometimes. And that's even with common graph types, right? 
what room is there for innovation? So this was another question that someone on Twitter posed. Helena asked, is there innovation in chart types? And maybe more specifically, are innovative charts really helping anyone? Well, all right. So we can think about these um, in many different ways. And I, 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 I think that I address these balance between tradition and innovation in my previous book, in The Truthful Art. And I'm not going to quote myself verbatim here, but I believe that what I say is that there is a place for everything. There is a place for traditional graphic forms that are you know, well-established, bar graphs, line graphs, even scatter plots are becoming more understandable and more popular, fortunately. So traditional graphic forms that we may, may believe that a high percentage of our audiences are going to understand um, well, in general. Um, so most of the time we should be using those kinds of charts, particularly if what we want to do is to convey a message quickly, effectively, or if we want people to make decisions about, um, about uh, or based on the data, I think that we should default for the more traditional graphic forms, the more conventional ones, in the good sense of the word conventional. They have become so common that they have become conventional. They are part of the common language that everybody uses. So if the purpose of the graphic is to quickly extract information or make a decision based on the data, it's a particular in a situation of emergency or whatever, then I would default for the traditional graphic forms. But I believe that our responsibility as designers doesn't end with the responsibility that we all have towards the reader or the viewer. We also have a responsibility towards the craft itself. And that means that we have a responsibility to improve the craft, expand the language of the craft, innovate in the craft, and come up with best, better ways to display data. The scatter plot was a novelty in the 19th century. It was an unusual graphic form in the 19th century, but 100 years later, now it's part of the common language. Bar graphs and line charts, they were a novelty in the 17th or 18th century. Right now, they are part of the language that everybody uses when we communicate graphically. It may happen, for example, that 10, 20, 30 years from now, a tree maps or connected scatter plots or more weird graphic forms, they look super strange and super innovative and, 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 and novel nowadays. But 10, 30 years from now, they may be part just of, the, of common sense and maybe part of educational systems, right? Uh, so again, we have a responsibility also to expand this vocabulary, the language of, of, of visualization. I love that idea, right? That it's a responsibility. Uh, it puts a different sort of onus on it than innovating for the sake of, I don't know. I think sometimes we do stuff differently just to do stuff differently, but the responsibility I, factor puts I, I more weight that, on that. I don't think that that's necessarily bad. Yeah, You know, being playful, um, trying something new just for the sake of trying something new, just because you like it. I think that there's, that's a good reason to justify a, particularly a particular design decision in one context. It's only that you need to pay attention to the context. So that's not appropriate if you're going to do a dashboard for business decision-making, right? Or for, or for rapid decisions in a situation you know, of, of, of chaos or you know, natural hazards or things like that, or risk communication. In those cases, you need to default to the things, to the graphics that are more common and more easy, easy to interpret in, in one sense. But if you're doing a project for yourself, uh, you know, something that is a little bit more experimental, you know, that is not about a topic that is too controversial or whatever, it's completely appropriate and it's a per perfectly fine reason to say, I want to, I want to use this wacky graphic form just because I like it and I want to see what happens. And then I'm going to put it out in the open and see how people react. 
if they don't react well and they don't understand a thing, I will go back to my drawing board and try something different. But what about if they respond well? What about if I discover that a horizon chart, for example, works in certain circumstances, right? Horizon graphs were a novelty, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. Nowadays, they are still not very common, but they are not hard to understand once you once you grasp the grammar and the conventions behind them. They are not hard to understand at all. It's only that they have not become part of the common language yet. Yeah. Well, and this is the positive side of you know everybody being a publisher today, right? Because we can put stuff out there and f- find things that ten years ago would have been impossible. And establish a dialogue with other people and being open mm-hmm. to being open to responses and to critiques and to say you know they just get you know, replies from people telling you, well, I don't think that this works because such and such, and not taking those comments personally, but taking them as comments on your work, and that that may improve your work. Let's shift gears uh, maybe one last time, and I want to talk for a bit about story. Andy Cotgrave responded to my tweet for questions for you and posed one that I'm also very interested in your opinion on, which is, are the techniques of lying the same as the ones you would legitimately use to tell a particular story based on the data? The same techniques? Um, Well, I guess that they are not the same techniques, because if you really want to lie what you do is to twist the message, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to build a narrative based on data or based on graphics and your purpose is to inform, um, you do it with that assumption in mind and you shape your story or your narrative to improve understanding, not to destroy understanding. So the techniques are the same in the sense that you use the same, uh, let's say, templates or structures to display the information, right? And you use, you use the same encodings and you use the same grammar to write your story, et cetera, and so on and so forth. So they are the same in that way. What makes a difference is the intention behind that, I would, I would say. And what about, and, and maybe this is coming back to this shared mental model idea, I'm not sure, but when the intent of the person creating the graph is to inform, but by doing so in a way that's trying to be influencing, the recipient or the audience feels like uh, feels like they're being led to a place that isn't quite true. I it, Maybe I'm sort of talking in circles a little bit, but one question that gets raised a lot to me in workshops is this idea of, you know, there being a way that you can show data that's going to answer a question that is not biased, which is this sort of faulty expectation of what a graph can do, right? Coming back to what a graph can do and what a graph can't do. Mm -hmm. But related to that, I sometimes get pushback just on this idea of story or of telling a story with data as if that is a negative thing, Mm -hmm. um, when I don't think it is when it's done in the right way. Well, I tend not to use the word story, as you know, because story relates at least in my mind, the way that I that I that I that I usually have understood the word story, it always has sort of like an an I don't know how to put it, like a an emotional component. Although emotional is not emotional is not necessarily bad, but yeah. it's like tension, it, right? It ten, yeah, tendentious, bias. You know, it's like and not necessarily bad. I mean, you want to provoke an emotion when we tell a story. One of our goals is not just to convey information, but to provoke a feeling. First of all, a mm-hmm. sensation and then the feeling of that sensation. And that's not necessarily bad. But in certain circumstances, again, when you when you when the purpose of geographic is to communicate effectively, right, 
perhaps we should talk more about narrative because narrative doesn't have the same implications. It doesn't have the same connotations as the word, as the word story because narrative mm-hmm. is mostly about structure. So you, it's like a step-by-step, one, two, three, four, five structure in which you try to just lay out your case as clearly as possible, right? And you, you basically just do it that way. That, so it speaks, up, it speaks about the structure more than it speaks about your goals, when designing that that graphic to provoke an emotion, I, I get pushback sometimes also in on this thing because I am a journalist, so I use the word story all the time, um, yep. casually. But you know we need to be careful because again, different audiences interpret that word in different ways. So yes. I, I try to be more careful uh, nowadays and use the word narrative because that doesn't have the same load, right? Or the same charge. It's not a charge word so to speak, the same way that a story is. Yeah, it's interesting, right? The different, yeah, the different associations that people have with different concepts. Yeah, yeah, it's completely, particularly, particularly scientists and statisticians, they are very wary mm-hmm. uh, of the word story. And I think that for good reason, because they, they say, well, we don't do stories, we do arguments, right? Hmm. We build arguments and arguments are not necessarily stories. They are arguments. I don't know, but there is, there's tension there, right? That Absolutely. can be resolved. I'm not, like I'm that... not debating. I'm not saying that they are right or wrong. I'm just trying yeah, to come. put myself in the shoes of people who speak like yes. that. And I'm trying to basically speak. I'm trying to understand where they come from. And I perfectly understand where they come from. And as I said before, to bridge the gap between the way that we describe things and the way that other people describe things, the word narrative is less, much less loaded than the word story. Yeah. Yeah. Or essay. I, I, I really like, for example, the fact that the pudding, you know, the pudding, um, mm-hmm. the pudding, call, well, you're going to put links to all this stuff in the, in the website. Yes. Everybody yes, can refer to that. So the pudding, this website that collects data stories, right, and creates data stories, they don't call their stories stories. They call their stories essays. And well, which is funny because I have a visceral negative reaction to essays. I, I, I was, say, oh, I was, it sounds like it's going to be boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a bias. But you know what? That's something that I discovered as a Spaniard, something coming from Spain. In Spanish, it doesn't have the same connotation. as mm. it, And I think that it has to do with the fact that here in schools, you're always asked to write yes. your personal essay about whatever. Yeah. And you think that it's actually boring. For me, essay, essay is a beautiful word because essay, at least in Spanish, means an argument in which you are sort of arguing with yourself or reasoning out loud your case to yourself and also to others. And you may reach uh, a solid conclusion, but you may not. So an essay is open-ended. It's part of a conversation. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a beautiful word, at least, in, at least in Spanish. And it speaks to me quite, I, I really like the word essay. And I sometimes try to use the word essay in the subtitles of my books. And I got pushback from publishers. I said, well, this, this will sound really boring. Nobody's going to read it. <laughs> and now I understand where you all come from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it does stem from school probably, yeah. which is funny because I didn't dislike writing essays even. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that you could use also the word argument or whatever. Yeah. But, but for me, essay has different connotations because an argument sounds very strict and very rigorous. An essay doesn't need to be rigorous. It, need, yeah. it needs to be recent. It needs to be based yeah. on reasons, of course. But it can, you know, draw evidence or ideas from multiple sources, putting them together. Again, an essay is like thinking out loud in front of other people to have a mm-hmm. conversation with other people and also being open to receive feedback on whatever it is that you're writing about 
it's, again, it's part of an open-ended conversation, and I love conversations. Well, when you describe it like that, it sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a totally maybe off-the-wall question, but I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask you because I was super curious about it as I was reading. It's probably not even directly related to the content of the book, although maybe it is, but your color scheme. Right? It's unusual to see a book about graphs not in full color, though clearly this was intentional. Tell us about the colors in your book and how you chose them. Well, it's a, it's a limitation in terms of uh, production costs. So I would love the book to be full color, but that will make the book extremely, extremely expensive. So I said, when, when I sent the proposal for the book, I said, you know, ideally it should be full color. But if it full color increases the cost of the book, you know, enormously, we can just do it with two or three colors. That's how, how we landed into sort of this faded, faded gray and faded red uh, color scheme. So it's a limitation in terms of cost. Wait, and it looks very striking as you flip through. What made you land on red? Well, because red is very striking. But I, I yeah. try to tone it down a little bit. It's not, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if, it, if it looks extremely, extremely red, but we actually toned it down a little bit so it looks sort of orangey. Right, rather than okay. pure blood red, yeah. Yep. But it's just a matter. I could have used orange. Orange was another one of my preferences, but it doesn't print as well as red on on the mm -hmm. page, and it doesn't contrast that well against against sorry against gray um, on the printed page. Yeah, and it was really interesting to me because some of these graphs that you remade that would have originally been full color in grayscale and red actually work quite well when that's done thoughtfully. All right. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And, <laughs> a, and a, a, a different color that I consider uh, was blue, also using blue mm -hmm. instead of gray, but it doesn't contrast as well with gray um, mm -hmm. as red does. Yep. Again, it's not. I'm not going to claim that I'm the best designer in the world. I'm pretty sure that prof some professional designers will, you know, will have pet peeves around these. You should have used a different color. But again, it's related to production costs. So that's that's those are the constraints that you always have when you want to create a mass market a book such as this sure. one. You need to deal with those constraints. Ideally, it should have been full color, but again, that will make the book, you know, will be much make it much more expensive. How did you choose the cover art? I didn't choose it. Well, I actually chose it, but I didn't design it. So I was the designers at WW Norton. They sent me several um, several options. The first one that they that they sent me, I didn't like at all. I said, and I say that openly. Although I'm very constructive when I give criticism, I say, you know, I don't think that this will work. It was yellow, and it had a very weird silhouette of a person reading a graphic. I didn't really like it. It didn't have a very strong message. And then I said, you know, other books that you have published. They have very strong, very concise, and very clear covers. And I'm thinking about, I mentioned this one um, explicitly, uh, Charles Whelan's uh, Naked Statistics, for example, mm -hmm. which is also, is also published by W.W. Norton. I said, you know, I really like Charlie's book. This is excellent. And, and Whelan ended up writing a blurb for How Child Science as well. Um, but anyway, his book is fantastic. You should all read it, uh, uh, Naked Statistics. But pay attention to the cover. The cover is like super simple, super basic. Yeah. It's funny. It's also quite funny. So I sent that reference to the to the designers and I said, you know, it would be great to have something like this. And they came back with this idea of the two bar of the two bars in a bar graph and then the shadows being the complete opposite of the bars themselves. And I thought, well, this is perfect. It has great contrast. It's very concise. It actually conveys what the book is about. So let's go for it. It's great. 
And you talked about uh, when we tuned in today that this was the book you had the most fun writing. I want to come back to that. What made this the most fun book to write? Well, I laughed a lot. I mean, I, I got to use I got to use bad words in the book. I curse a little <laughs> bit here and there. There are a, a couple of f bombs here and there. So it's like, how can you not have fun with that? So I had fun with several examples. Um, I don't know a, a few examples are a little bit sassy, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. I like that. I got to talk about hard rock and heavy metal in a book about visualization, and I had a lot of fun with that. Um, I don't know. I, I and I also talked about things again that I really care about. So. I'm not going to speak very a lot about this, but if you read the conclusion of How Chats Lie, it gives you an idea of what I would like to work on in the next four or five years. They, it, it describes the mm. themes that I'm most interested mm-hmm. in. So the conclusion of How Chats Lie is actually an essay. It's an essay that I sort of wrote to myself as sort of the, laying the ground for perhaps future books or future articles, et cetera. So I also had a lot of fun with that as well. Interesting. Yeah, because so we've had you know, what's been a fun conversation and, and felt very optimistic here today. I will say in reading the book, though it was more positive than I expected, things were pretty dire at points, right? A ton of examples of things done wrong or so easily misinterpreted. But as you mentioned, you end with a much more positive um so make a set of examples, I'll say. I won't go into the details. Save that for those reading. But your outlook overall on the use of graphs is a very positive one. I right? am. Very, I mean, I, I am a visualization designer. I'm a great believer in the, you know, in, in the power of, of visualizations. I think that they are great. It's only that we cannot just talk about the positive side of visualization. How great visualizations are. How fantastic they are. You know, the possibilities that they give us. We do need to talk about that. But we also need to acknowledge the fact that we need to also help people who are not visualization designers um, become better chart readers. And then everybody will be happy. Everybody will be able to design charts and read them better. And then we can use charts to have better conversations, which is the whole purpose of the book. I think that's a great point to wrap things up with. Alberto, this has been a lot of fun as always. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave listeners? Uh, I don't know. You know, just keep designing great visualizations that I may enjoy, post them in social media. I love to see everybody's work. And, you know, if I really like it, I would probably promote it and, and help you spread the word about whatever it is that you're doing. I am very interested, by the way, interested, by the way in visualizations designed in non-English speaking countries. So, because I, I tend mm. to believe that, and this is a problem with how chats lie, by the way, it's very US centric. And one of the things that I offer myself to do for international editions you know, it's going to be translated in several languages. And I said to my publisher, well, talk to the international publisher and tell them that if they want me to change a few examples and create examples that's tailored to their own countries, I'm open to doing that. Because I came to believe that most of the visualization books that we have nowadays are too centered in the English-speaking world. Um, And we need to deal with that. We need to see what's going on in India. We need to see what's going on in China. I don't know what is going on in all African countries. I know very little about visualization. Other than Egypt, I'm a little bit familiar with uh, data visualization designers and data journalists in Egypt. But other, and that has nothing to do with my last name, by the way, because I'm from Spain, not from Egypt. But um, so it's completely unrelated. But other than Egypt, I don't know what's going on in the rest of Africa. And that's a huge continent. Um, so what's going on over there? Are great? Are there great visualization designers that I'm not aware of? I want to know about them. 
So yeah, this is just a random thought. So if you're interested, just contact me. It's very easy to find me, um, at me on Twitter. Yeah. And we'll make sure we put all of your you know, website, Twitter, all that information in the show notes so that people have an easy time following your work and finding you. So Alberto, this has been great. I wish you much success Thank with you, your Paul. new well, book. Well, likewise, you have another, you have a book yourself, a new book come, uh, that just came out. Uh, just about, right, yeah, a couple I, weeks. I say the same thing. I wish you all the luck with that. Thank you very much. To those listening, pick up your own copy of How Charts Lie, and I encourage you to get a second one to give to a friend who maybe doesn't even know they need to read it. We can all help improve graphical literacy one book at a time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Thank you. 